according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Once again, we're going to be dealing with the Great Commission, although we have concluded Matthew 28. Let's just turn there briefly, and then we will uh, pick up our study back in Luke 24. Episode 12 in our Harmony of the Gospels is called The Great Commission, and it blends Matthew 28 with Mark 16 with Luke 24. Haven't done much with Mark 16. It's in that uh, doubtful passage at the end of Mark 16, after verse 8, where really the manuscript evidence is pretty weak uh, for accepting those verses. I don't accept those verses as being original to the Gospel of Mark. Um, in any event, it doesn't change our doctrine or our understanding of the Great Commission in any event. Um, so anyway, that's what that is in Mark 16. But Matthew 28, you've got the mountain, and it is a Galilean mountain, and uh, what we've been dealing with. Before we get started, let's take time for silent prayer, asking the Father to bless our time of study today, shall we pray? Heavenly Father, I do thank you for the truth of your word. I rejoice, Father, in the provision you've made for us to assemble together. Uh, Father, you are spirit. You must be worshipped in spirit and in truth, Father. And we thank you for these operational spheres. We thank you for these instrumental uh, uses, the blessings that we have to approach your throne of grace. Father, with humility, we are to receive the word implanted that's able to save our souls. So I pray this morning, Father, we would indeed be making use of the true humility that comes from you, that we might humble ourselves under your mighty hand, we might humble ourselves under your instruction. Father, that we might receive this word implanted that's able to save our souls. And we thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, the Great Commission. Everybody uh, zeroes in on verse 19 as if that's the entire thing. Go therefore and make disciples. And that's what they think the Great Commission is. But go therefore and make disciples has a much larger context around it. And uh, as we've been working our way through the points of study, hopefully you've seen that. Point three in our outline centered on the imperative and uh, brought in all the details. Remind yourself, though, this is a different event than what we're going to see today in Luke 24. This is a mountain in Galilee. The eleven proceeded to Galilee to the mountain which Jesus had designated in verse 16. There was really only one appointment after the resurrection. Only one appointment that he told them about before the resurrection. And before, on the night he was betrayed, on the night he was arrested, he told them, I'm going to die, I'm going to rise again. Go and meet me in Galilee. That was their appointment. Everything else was bonus. Everything else was surprise. Everything else was not scheduled. From the upper room to walking by the beach, do you love me more than these, to the Emmaus Road guys, to the, the women in the garden at the, at the, at the uh, tomb, Every other appearance, post-resurrection appearance of Jesus Christ was impromptu, unscheduled, unpromised, unanticipated. This is the only one, the Great Commission is the only one that he told them about before he died and said, after I'm resurrected from the dead, meet me in Galilee. And so they meet him there and they wavered. (laughs) When they saw him, they worshiped, but wavered. It reads in uh, my English anyway, most of our English Bibles, it says some were doubtful, okay? Horrible, 
get rid of the some, they all wavered. Everyone that went worshipped, and everyone that worshipped wavered. They went, they worshipped, they wavered. And uh, what you might expect, they are on the verge of their next assignment. They're on the verge, it's like, you know, uh, you, 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 you prepare for four years, five years, six years, you're preparing for ordination. When that night arrives, <laughs> all right, a second thought will come through your mind. Draw closer to the Lord and, and step through. See what he does with it, all right? Wavering is not sinning until you allow your wavering to become doubt. We, we talked about those principles of wavering under point two of the outline. All right, the imperative is not go. The imperative is make disciples, all right? Go, therefore, is anticipatory of the main imperative to make disciples. Go is idiomatic. Go is an expression. Go is a given or an understood that uh, the disciples aren't going to spend the rest of their lives on that mountain in Galilee. They're obviously going to go elsewhere. And as they go, where they go, wherever they go, for the rest of their lives, they are expected to make disciples. It's an aorist imperative, and it's the only imperative in this context, make disciples. It doesn't say preach the gospel. It says make disciples. Preaching the gospel will be a part of that, because if you're trying to make an unbeliever a disciple, it's not going to happen. You've got to make them a disciple. You've got to get them saved first, so preach the gospel, obviously, is step one. And then um, where you're baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Clearly, a perishing one in Adam cannot be a disciple. Evangelism has to be step one. Yes, we want to preach the gospel, but we don't stop with preaching the gospel. If you get somebody saved, they're not a disciple. They are a brother in Jesus Christ or a sister in Jesus Christ. But simply being saved does not make them a disciple. If you lead someone to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, praise the Lord, the angels are singing, I'm singing, we're happy about it, but we're not done. They are not yet disciples. They are babes in Christ, and you need to ground them in the Word of God. So teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. All that I commanded you. Now, this is a package. This is a unit, a module. I want to stress this. I stressed it last week. I'm going to stress it again this week. All that I commanded you, it says. You see that in verse 20? Teaching them to observe to observe, to keep, to apply, to live, not just to know it, to live it, to observe it. Teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. Now that's a package. That's a finite amount. That's a corpus, as it were, right? A body of, of literature, a body of content. Now, the uh, we discussed why this has to be limited in its scope. Why it's not everything that Jesus ever taught, ever. It's not going all the way back to the River Jordan and the very early things that he taught. It's not the Sermon on the Mount. It's not the, uh, some of the early lessons that were taught, that were directed towards the lost sheep of the house of Israel. All right. Specifically, it relates to the upper room discourse and the upper room discourse only. That is a content that is encapsulated. It's a content that's bounded. All right? And uh, the idea of all that I commanded you, uh, when we went back and looked at that in John 13 through John 17, we have the command, the command, the command, a new commandment I have for you that you love one another. And the content of chapters 13 through 17, that is a self-contained unit. It's not related to the Olivet Discourse. It's not related to the uh, to the Sermon on the Mount. It's not related to uh, all the, the, the teaching that Jesus did in Galilee. All right? 
It is a self-contained unit. And it is the body of commands that he gave when he said, now is the Son of Man glorified and the Father is glorified in him. So John 13 through 17 is the content we must teach if we're going to fulfill the Great Commission in teaching them to observe, to keep, to apply, to live all that I commanded you. And lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. All right. Is that clear? Until you teach somebody the doctrine of John of the upper room discourse, to know it, to live it, to apply it, to observe it. The key word there is observe. Okay, guard tereo. Then uh, you haven't made a disciple. It, it, it's it's mind boggling how many people are just getting people saved and they call that discipleship, or they come alongside in a big brother buddy kind of thing and they go bowling and they call that discipleship. All right. The imperative has a closing encouragement. That's the personal presence of Jesus Christ. That's a reality for this age. Went through some principles there. Now we get to point four. For this now, where he says, Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Roll credits, okay? Uh, The screen goes dark. The music starts playing. The credits start rolling. It's the end of the movie, right? It's the end of the book. This is how Matthew closes his gospel. Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. The end. And we're left thinking, okay, that's it. Did he, did he ascend to heaven after that? Doesn't say. Did they come down off that mountain after that? Didn't say. Did he walk down with them after that? Didn't say. Where did he go? Where did they go? Doesn't say. It's just kind of, hmm. Well, we know from the other gospels that he ascended to heaven. Is that what happened here? Or did something else happen here? Well, let's go to Mark. I mean, let's go to Luke, Luke 24. We go from the Great Commission to the Great Cognition. That's my title, and uh, I'm claiming it. Trademark and copyright. I hope to collect royalties, preferably in the uh, low millions. Oh, heaven, you're going to get spiritual on me now. Okay. (laughs) Fine, you're right. I want my treasure in heaven. Luke 24. (laughs) The Great Cognition. The Great Cognition. Now, in the A.T. Robertson harmony we're using, it's just blended in the same event, and it's assumed to be the same event as the Great Commission episode. Uh, I refuse, I, I just cannot accept that on the basis of the geography, on the basis of the context before and after, also on the basis of, um, really, the, uh, the impact of what he's stressing here. Um, he's not telling them to make disciples, he tells them that you are my witnesses. You are my martyrs. Now, sure, there could be some overlap in that. You might be martyred as you make disciples. It's conceivable they could be the same event happening at the same time, but not necessarily. You could be martyred in an application whereby you're not making any kind of disciples. And you also can make all kinds of disciples in, in different places where you're not martyred at all. all right? the, the emphasis of this passage is your martyrdom. Your martyrdom. Okay, and uh, we'll see that here in a moment. Now, uh, the great cognition, because this is where he opens their minds to understand the Scriptures. And you have that in verse 45. He opened their minds to understand the Scriptures. Okay? Now, I understand we're taking the edge off. As soon as uh, you feel like the edge has been taken off, feel free to 
stop taking the hedge off. I'm, I'm speaking to my thermostat deacon back there. All right. The podium is at least 10 degrees higher than the seats. Now, part of my suffering for Jesus, you understand. All right. The mountaintop setting had a follow-up event in Jerusalem. The mountaintop setting had a follow-up event in Jerusalem. And that's how I sequence this anyway. Verses 44 through 49 is a Jerusalem context, not a Galilee context. When we place this uh, paragraph within the um, progression from in, in the process of Luke 24, we've got this very ambiguous now that starts in verse 44. Now. All right. And uh, the, the transition between verse 43 and verse 44 is a matter of some days. It doesn't specify that it's the next day. It doesn't specify that it's a week later or eight days later or 12 days later. It doesn't say. It just is one of those ambiguous then statements. Okay, Now, he said to them, or now on a subsequent event, now at a later message, it's just now he said to them, these are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. All right, here we have another comprehensive statement of what he had previously been teaching them. Okay, similar to what we had with the Great Commission, but I think different. I think larger. I think more comprehensive than just the upper room discourse. I think it's a much broader picture than the upper room discourse when he starts to relate it to the law, the prophets, and the writings. Okay? The law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms must be fulfilled. He starts to develop a comprehensive systematic theology for these guys. Okay? And he relates it specifically to my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you. In other words, he's starting to make that connection between the Old Testament and what's about to come in the New Testament. I'll show you what I mean by that here in a moment. All right, this is not a mountaintop setting. I think clearly when we were looking at these verses prior, we're in a Jerusalem context. And when we led uh, the verses afterwards, um, notice when, when the red letters stop in verse 49, he says, Behold, I am sending forth the promise of my Father upon you, but you are to stay in the city. To me, boom, there it is. That's where they are. You are to stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. And unlike Matthew, Luke does not end his gospel with red letters. <laughs> okay? Luke ends his gospel with, oh, well, what happened next? And he led them out as far as Bethany. And it's, that doesn't break the expectation that they're going to stay in the city. Bethany was considered within the larger boundaries of the city, Sabbath day's journey and whatnot. He led them out as far as Bethany, and he lifted up his hands and blessed them. And while he was blessing them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they, after worshiping him, returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple praising God. All right, so there's the context. They are in Jerusalem when they receive this message, this follow-up event. And this follow-up event likely took um, several nights. It probably took several days to teach the whole content about all my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you and all the things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms. Have you ever tried to go through all the Old Testament to every Messianic passage in the Old Testament? It'll take a while. 
It's going to take a while. Everything that's written about Jesus Christ, every messianic psalm, every messianic prophecy, every shadow, every type, the tabernacle, I mean everything in the Old Testament that speaks of Christ. And he walked them through that in this episode. Okay? That's far and away different than all authority in heaven and on earth has been, in heaven and on earth has been granted me. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, teaching them and baptizing them. It's, it's a huge difference of content. It's a different setting. It's a different content. It's a different uh, ending. All right. So then it behooves us to say, well, okay, if it's different, then which comes first? Which order does it come in? Does the Great Commission come before the Great Cognition? Or does the Great Cognition come before the Great Commission? And, you know, you can make a case either way, I would imagine. Um, but to me, given that the Ascension is in Jerusalem and the Mount of Olives just east of Jerusalem, and the setting for uh, this, the Great Cognition, is also Jerusalem, to me, it's more natural to, to place the Great Commission first, Matthew 28 first, and then Luke 24 as a follow-up event. Luke 24 is a follow-up event, and so that's why I've titled it there. If uh, somebody else tries to make a case that it's the other way around, okay, make the case. Um, I just this is this is how I'm looking at it. All right. Jesus restated the content of his previous messages while I was still with you. While I was still with you. Interestingly enough, that means that this present message, he's no longer with them. <laughs> okay? And he's not. He's resurrected, he's glorified, he's, he's no longer with them. He's not walking a human walk of humility in, in kenosis. Okay? He's no longer with them when he speaks this message. I mean, he's present, he's there, but he is not with them as their teacher. They're not his disciples any longer. He's no longer with them. As I illustrate, if when, every time Ralph Braun comes back down from Kansas again and he, he teaches, he's, he's with us again, he's visiting, he's, he's, he's teaching in a conference or whatever. He's here physically, but he's, and he can talk back about, in hindsight, in memory, about the time that he was the pastor of this church. You understand the difference? And so when he says, while I was with you, while I was still with you, he's approaching this message differently than before. He is now resurrected. He's glorified. He's no longer kenosis. He's no longer having laid aside his privileges. He's no longer walking the walk of humiliation. And uh, speaking as he is, as the apostle and high priest of our confession, he starts to open their minds to a whole new reality that is mystery doctrine of the church. He starts to increase their capacity to think in church terms, not just Israel terms, is what's happening here. And to do that, they need a foundation in Old Testament theology. They need to take everything spoken of in the law, the prophets, and the writings, as we see here, everything that's written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. This is huge. Must be fulfilled. And, and he, I mean, this is the last conference that he hosts, the last content that he gives them before the ascension. So think about how significant this, this has, has to be. All right. 
And the hermeneutical distinction centers on the term fulfilled. Fulfilled is a concept that's huge for you and for me in rightly dividing the word of truth. You and, you and I, we have, yes, we say, well, we have a little her- hermeneutic. Well, how do, we, how do we fix that little hermeneutic? What's it about? It's about what's fulfilled and what's unfulfilled. Okay? Because as he walks them through the entire Old Testament and shows them everything that's Christological, everything that's messianic, most of that's not yet fulfilled. Sure, the cross is fulfilled. The death is fulfilled. The resurrection's fulfilled because the Holy One was not abandoned to undergo decay. Um, all of the suffering was fulfilled. But he's teaching them that everything must be fulfilled. Well, what, about the, what about the conquering the world part? <laughs> what about victory over the Gentiles? What about the lion lying down with the lamb? What about peace on earth and goodwill? And what about... See, that's all second advent. That's all unfulfilled on this day or multiple days at this conference. Okay? I think I suspect this took hours. This this must have taken hours to pour through the scriptures. And no wonder he had to open their mind to take it all in. How could anybody take in an entire thing like that in, in one session or in one event, one episode? So, um, must be fulfilled. The recognition is, is that everything that was not fulfilled in first advent doesn't mean that God's abandoning Israel, doesn't mean that he's chucked his plan, doesn't mean he's going to replace Israel with the church, doesn't mean that uh, he's going to switch now to something else instead, that whatever is unfulfilled is just God saying, oh well, write that off, try something else. Okay? It must be fulfilled. In other words, he's training them not to be replacement theologians. (laughs) He's training them to understand that there is presently a gap. There is presently an intercalation. The church age is a forestalling of the future kingdom. That presently Israel is on hold. Presently Israel has a partial hardening until the fullness of the Gentiles is brought in. But there, there remains a promise to David. There remains a promise to Abraham. There is a future for Israel. Everything spoken of regarding Christ must be fulfilled. So, he restated the content of his previous messages while I was still with you. In other words, he gives a summary of first advent ministry. That might be another way to say, a better way of saying this. Jesus Christ provided a summary of his entire first advent ministry with a focus on the Old Testament scriptures and what is yet to come what must be fulfilled eschatologically. What must be fulfilled eschatologically. That's what he's doing here. And so in order to do this, he had to open their minds. He opened their minds. Is this a scary prospect or an encouraging prospect, a fun prospect? What do you think about this? Do you want him to open your mind? Okay, I do. And he does. In fact, he has, and he will do even more. That's the aspect that we understand on this. Oh, uh, oh it's not that they were closed-minded. It's not that you know. It's not an open in the sense that okay, they were closed-minded before. Now they're open-minded. Now they can think. No, they had an open mind already, as we understand the idiom. Okay, and and it's not to be fair. 
our idiom of open-mindedness is different than the, the Greek here is, is dealing with. Okay. Dianoigo. Dianoigo is our term. Eight uses in the New Testament. Did we look at those last week? No. Well, then let's look at them this week. Eight uses of dianoigo. To open or to explain. Starting in Mark 7, 34. And, and you realize a lot of it's idiomatic because we're not talking about cutting into the skull and <laughs> looking at the, at the brain under the, uh, under the uh, skull cap. Okay. Mark chapter 7 and verse 34. Open your mind. Mark 7. Used to be in between, there it is. <laughs> Matthew and Luke. I was going to say, did it get moved lately? There it is. All right. So looking up to heaven with a deep sigh. This is kind of fun. The um, He went out from the region of Tyre, came through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee with, within the region of Decapolis. And they brought to him one who was deaf and spoke with difficulty. They implored him to lay hands on him. So Jesus took him aside from the crowd by himself, put his finger into his ears, and after spitting, he touched his tongue with saliva. Remarkable. I don't think Jesus ever did the same miracle two times the same exact way every single time. Isn't that? Sometimes he puts mud on, sometimes he spits, sometimes he just says a word. And um, looking up to heaven with a deep sigh, he said to him, Ephatha, that is, be opened. And our verb, dianuego, here as an imperative, is uh, what's happening here. Now, is he opening the ears? Yeah, it says his ears were opened, and the impediment of the tongue was removed, and he began speaking plainly. So there's the, uh, the illustration there. That's not opening a mind, that's opening ears, loosening a tongue. Luke 2.23. What do you think of when you think Luke 2? Birth of Jesus, yeah. You're thinking, uh, thinking um, Jesus' birth in Bethlehem, the shepherds by night. Well, when eight days had passed before his circumcision, his name was then called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And, uh, of course, this is a theological fulfillment. He is the Savior. It is the theological fulfillment of Emmanuel, God with us. Um, People complain that, well, how, how come they didn't name him Emmanuel? You know, well, think about it. Anyway, give him some kind of privacy till he's 30 years of age and able to start serving the Lord. All right. When the days for their purification according to the law of Moses were completed, they brought him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male that opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And it's just idiomatic. It's a recognition that as a child is born, you can think that, okay, the womb is now open. Okay? That uh, prior to pregnancy, um, prior to, you know, a virgin or even a, uh, a married woman who's not birthed an offspring, uh, then the womb is not open in, uh, in that way. But the birth, and interestingly enough, the birth of a daughter doesn't open the womb the way that the firstborn of a son opens the womb. Anyway, a bit of an idiom when it comes to that. Most of these we're going to see have an idiomatic use. Luke 24, it's not only uh, verse 45 that has it, but verse 31, verse 32 in this 24th chapter. 
Luke 24, 31. Their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he vanished from their sight. Remember that? The two men on the Emmaus Road. And they said, hey, you know, come have dinner with us. It's late. You can't make it to the next town. Why don't you stay in our house tonight? And he goes, okay. And so he stays with them in their house. They have dinner. And then while he's breaking bread is when it finally clicked with them. Ah, Jesus used to break bread like that, right? That was his style. That was his uh, method. And uh, why couldn't they see him before? So their eyes were opened and they recognized him. See, and here's the idiom here. And and we have it. This is throughout the New Testament. We've got the the concept. We want to have ears to hear. We don't want closed ears. We want to have open ears. We want to have eyes to see. What's the rebuke on Israel? Having eyes they could not see. We want to have spiritual eyes to see the truth. We want to have spiritual ears to hear the truth. We want to have a heart that's open in humility to receive the truth. So their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he vanished from their sight. And they said to one another, were not our hearts burning within us while he was speaking to us? Okay? We're, we're, we're not our... Was, I want to make sure I don't misspeak here. Verse 32. Were not our hearts burning within us? And that's pluralized. My heart was burning. Your heart was burning. Our hearts, plural, were burning. But when the two or three you had the confirmation of this... Okay, They knew something was happening. They just couldn't quite identify it. They were still considering. They weren't yet to the point of conviction. While he was speaking to us on the road, while he was explaining, that's the same verb, explaining the Scriptures to us. And this is what's beautiful because we've got the metaphor and we've got the literal use, the same verb in verse 31 and verse 32. Their eyes were opened in verse 31 but he was explaining the Scriptures, verse 32. Same verb both times. It's our dianoigo. It's our verb that we're looking at here where he opened their minds to understand the Scriptures. All right. I think it's fascinating anyway. How about Acts chapter 7 and verse 56? What do you think of when you think Acts 7? Stephen. There you go. See? Get a title, even if it's just a one-word title. Come up with a title for every chapter of the Bible. And if you need help, we've got a list of those. Okay? They're in the Through the Bible Notebook. Uh, there's a list of, of a, 1,189 chapters, whatever it is. There's, a, there's a, a chapter title for every chapter. And yeah, the, the stoning of Stephen here in Acts chapter 7. And uh, goes through his message. And of course, a real good message makes everybody mad. And that's what, <laughs> that's what happens here. Okay? And uh, gives him a walk through the Old Testament. I think what Stephen does here is patterned after what Jesus does in the Great Cognition episode. What's he doing? He's taking them through a walk through the Bible. He's taking them through the, the Law of Moses, the Prophets, and the Psalms. And he's showing that the things concerning Christ must be fulfilled. I believe that uh, this sermon, this message Stephen gives is very much patterned after what Christ gave his disciples in the Great Cognition Bible Conference. Okay. And so when they heard this, they were cut to the quick. They began gnashing their teeth at him. Gnashing their teeth at him. Remarkably how their activity is a prophecy of what it's going to be when they get to hell. Weeping and gnashing of teeth, that's right. Unbelievers in hell will continue eternally to operate 
in much the same thinking, in much the same anger, in much the same hatred, in much the same regret that they're exhibiting here and now. And being full of the Holy Spirit, he gazed intently into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Normally Jesus is seated at the right hand of God. You understand that? But there are occasions when he leaves his seat, when he will take a stand. And this is a prime example. I think typically he's seated at the right hand until the Father makes his enemies a footstool for his feet. As a rule, that's his normal position. Normally he's in a seated position. But on the occasion of a Christian martyrdom, when he's going to welcome a hero home, Jesus stands. Okay? And so, uh, standing at the right hand of God, and he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened. There's our verb. I see the heavens opened up, and I see the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice, covered their ears, rushed at him with one impulse. And uh, there it is. They had driven him out of the city. They began stoning him. And the witnesses laid aside their robes at the feet of a young man named Saul. What a privilege. He, he occupied a position of trust in these proceedings. All right. So, may have even been his first eligible vote. As he says elsewhere, he cast his vote against them. He was a voting member of the Sanhedrin. And uh, who knows, if this was, they call him a young man here, maybe this was his first recorded vote, his first official function. He'd been in training all this time. He finally receives the voting uh, privileges and standing. Finally, ta- he's finally vested or seated as, uh, as one of the 70. And, um, well, what an event, huh? <laughs> and uh, he's involved in the first martyrdom that Scripture records. All right, uh, chapter 16. Two more uses of Dia Nuevo here. When you think of, when you think of Acts 16, kind of fun. What's that? Yeah. Acts 16, 41. What must I do to be saved? Exactly. Philippian jailer. Yeah. And this uh, early in the chapter, preceding the Philippian jailer, the events here. Um, let's see. Oh, verse 14. Yeah. It's kind of interesting, though. We're going to teach this in Kansas City. Part of what God does to control... Uh, moving people around and uh, where they're going to go. Uh, Paul came to Derby and to Leicester. Here's where he's going to pick up Timothy. At this point, Paul and Silas are doing this missionary journey on their own. They don't have a young man in training. And uh, John Mark was the cause of the division with Paul and Barnabas. So when Paul and Barnabas went on their first missionary journey, they had John Mark. Basically two partners in ministry with a, with a, with a, a take-along. I call him a take-along. All right. And the take-along is a young man that, uh, you know, is just starting, getting training, learning how to do these things. Well, um, when Paul and Silas go off on their journey, they don't have a take-along. Then they get Timothy. He's their take-along. And then, um, but notice in verse 6, they pass through the Phrygian and Galatian region, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. They're not allowed to go into Asia. That's remarkable. Well, why not? What's wrong with Asia? Okay? I think Peter was there and God was keeping them separated, keeping the apostles from stepping on each other's toes, keeping the jurisdiction straight. And when the time is right, Paul will finally get to Asia 
He's going to spend three years in Ephesus, but not yet. He can't get there yet. John will spend time in Ephesus, but that won't be till after, after Paul's dead. Okay? God sorts these things all out. After they came to Mysia, they were trying to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not permit them. Remember who's head of the church? Jesus is head of the church. He opens doors of ministry. He closes doors of ministry. He leads in all ministry activity if, in fact, you're humble enough to follow his leadership. So passing by Mysia, they came down to Troas. And now what are they going to do? By the time they reach Troas, they're at the end of the world, so to speak. They have reached the, the boundary of Asia. All that's left now is to get on a boat and sail into Europe. Okay? And that's exactly what they're going to be led to do. So a vision to Paul appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing and appealing to him, saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. I love the fact he dreams, in the dream it's a man, when he gets there it's a woman. <laughs> Isn't that beautiful? To me, it's, it's, you know, I think it's great. Hello, Lydia. But in the dream it's a man. What I love is the fact that we, we have certain expectations as we get started. Some things that Steve and I are praying about, about Africa, and if that Warren and I are praying about going to Africa, and Warren won't be going, but we're praying. And, um, we've got expectations. What happens when we get there? And Hello, Lydia. <laughs> okay. Well, wasn't what I thought it was going to be. That's fine. That's fine. That's how God works. Anyway, all this, I'm still headed for verse 14, all right? And, uh, well, we sought to go to Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So you come to a faith conviction, and the faith that you have, have as your own conviction before the Lord. Happy is he that does not condemn himself in what he approves. You come to a conclusion. You conclude. And part of what we're teaching in Kansas City are the C's of exploring your giftedness, considering, concluding, convicting, the confirmation that occurs, the, convi- the uh, consecration that occurs, the confession that you make, all the C's in your gifts and ministries and effects. All right, so then they, uh, they put out to sea, they come to Neapolis, from there to Philippi, and uh, we, were staying in, we were staying in that city for some days. The we starts to show up here once he gets to Troas. Uh, you have the they, the they, the they, the they, the they, until you get to verse 10, and then we have the we had called us. So this is where Luke joins the traveling party. They becomes we in the narrative of the book of Acts. And then uh, a woman named Lydia in verse 14 from the city of Thyatira. Where's Thyatira? Back where they started from. Yeah, back there in that region Paul couldn't go into. Paul couldn't go into Asia. That's where she was from, but she wasn't there anymore. She was now in uh, Philippi, a seller of purple fabrics, a worshiper of God. What's this Gentile? We assume she's Gentile, Greek name and the, the locations here, Thyatira and Philippi. Lydia, uh, a worshiper of God, a God-fearing Gentile, was listening and the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. All right, so there's our idiom. He opened their minds here the Lord opened her heart. Now our heart and mind, are they synonyms or are they different? We are studying that this morning. They're different, but, that, but they're related. Remember the peace of God that surpasseth all understanding will guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. They both need to be guarded. They both need to be opened. 
if they're opened, they really need to be guarded. Because <laughs> if they're opened, uh, the Lord's not the only one that can shove stuff in there. The adversary can shove stuff in there. Your own heart has wicked stuff in it too, remember. Okay? So, open her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. Finally then, uh, Acts 17. When they traveled through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica where there was a synagogue of the Jews. According to Paul's custom, he went to them and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining, there's Dianuego, explaining and giving evidence that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead and saying, this Jesus whom I am proclaiming to you is the Christ. Now notice, explaining and giving evidence that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead. What's he doing? He's imitating Jesus' Bible conference in the Great Cognition episode. He's going from an Old Testament standpoint of the Scriptures, the, whole, the Hebrew Scriptures, showing the things that relate to the Christ and showing how they must be fulfilled. He's talking to Jews here. They know about the Messiah. They know about the Hebrew Scriptures. They just haven't linked it to the person of Jesus Christ. And um, this Jesus, who I'm proclaiming to you, is the Christ. you got all this doctrine about the Christ. Let me put a name to it. Let me, tell you, let me show you what he fulfilled. And some of them were persuaded. The idea of persuasion we've taught about before. And joined Paul and Silas, along with a large number of the God-fearing Greeks and a number of the leading women. But the Jews, becoming jealous and taking along some wicked men from the marketplace, formed a mob. Notice, you can do all the explaining under the sun. Your dianuego activity, you can keep talking until the cows come home, but until the Lord opens the heart, the Lord opens the mind, see, you see the difference? You can dianuego explain, but until he dianuego opens, what's going to happen? You're just going to make them mad. You're going to go grab some wicked men out of the marketplace. That's where I get my wicked men. <laughs> Anytime I need to form a mob, it's easy enough. There's never any shortage of rabble rousers for the adversary's uh, purposes. All right. So this is what he does now. He opens their minds. And we want this. We want we want we don't want to be closed minded. We want to we want to be humble to receive his word. Okay? And all the uh, the impact there. Now, when he concludes his message, his conference, he does so with a death and resurrection gospel message. Jesus concluded this event with a death and resurrection gospel message. Let me get back to Luke 24 now, and you'll see, and as we read it, we'll be wondering, wow, are we we reading Luke 24 or are we reading 1 Corinthians 15? (laughs) What are we reading here? Jesus died according to the Scriptures. He was buried and He rose again on the third day according to the Scriptures. That's uh, 1 Corinthians 15, right? Paul's uh, gospel message. So he opened their minds to understand the Scriptures, and he said to them, Thus it is written, it is written. I love it is written. To me it is as beautiful as it is finished. Jesus, he, he answered Satan three times with it is written. 
it is written defines a hermeneutic. It is written means that God has revealed in Scripture once and for all. Past completed action with present ongoing eternal results. It is written that Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead on the third day. Thus it is written. See, his gospel is quite simple. The gospel content is quite simple and quite similar to 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 and 4. That he died according to the Scriptures, that he rose again according to the Scriptures. Here it is, thus it is written, that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead the third day. That's the content of your message. Jesus Christ died for our sins and rose from the dead. So the content is quite simple and quite similar to 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 and 4. <laughs> you know, there's a lot of religious founders in the history of the world. There's only one that rose from the dead. All right? There's only one empty grave. There's only one who said what he was going to do ahead of time and then did it. One who now sits at the Father's right hand as our advocate, as our intercessor. Interestingly enough, all right, so thus it is written that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead the third day. Good to know. Great information. What do I do about it? (laughs) And repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. Secondly now, the apostles will be dispatched to a global mission. The apostles will be dispatched to a global mission. And here's where we're going to have to be careful. Here's where we want to understand the role of the church in fulfilling this. And here's where we want to understand the role of the tribulational evangelists in the fulfillment of this. All right. Repentance for the forgiveness of sins. What does that remind you of? Repentance for the forgiveness of sins. You remember? Think back 10 years. (laughs) Okay? If you were here back then. Think back to the ministry of John the Baptist. Think back to the role of the forerunner. Think back to what he was proclaiming. Okay? Think back to the message of repentance. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. All right. And ask yourself, in this, when he says, um, you are witnesses of these things, is he talking to them and only them? Or is he talking to them and then eschatologically is he speaking to those that will come in the end times? Is he speaking to those that will bear his name in the tribulation as the kingdom approaches? Proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. That's where it starts and that's where it ends. By the time Christ comes in his second advent, all the nations are going to be uh, gathered around Jerusalem. This is interesting imagery that takes place. The the gospel's going to go forth. The gospel goes forth. And not only, you know, what's interesting, the gospel that that um, of the kingdom, okay, there's a term for it, the gospel of the kingdom. The gospel that John the Baptizer preached, the gospel that Jesus preached and the disciples preached early in his ministry, 
while he was still baptizing in the Jordan before the nation rejected him. The gospel of the kingdom that they were preaching was repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. All right, that was there. It was not the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus Christ. It hadn't happened yet. Okay? And so think about what the, the uh, if, since John the Baptist was the forerunner, the herald, think about what the second advent forerunner is going to do. Uh, right? Because Elijah is coming. Think about what the two witnesses are going to, what, what's their message going to be like in Revelation chapter 11? Think about the 144,000 and their evangelism. Okay? What is the content of their message? It's going to be both. It's going to be both repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, right? It's going to be both repent for the forgiveness of sins, repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be proclaimed in his name to all the nations, but also the death, burial, resurrection, ascension of Jesus Christ. In other words, the John the Baptist message and the church age gospel. Does that make sense? Okay. See, I, I, I think the what happens is I think this verse trips a lot of folks up. And instead of when you're talking to an unbeliever, do you do you pre- tell them to repent? Do you command them to repent? Do you put repentance in your gospel messages? Okay. I think it's better that you don't, my, my personal opinion. Because I think there's so much baggage that goes with that word. <laughs> and the imperative is believe anyway. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, thou shalt be saved. Paul didn't tell the Philippian jailer, repent and believe. Okay? We know that the change of thinking is part of what happens when the Holy Spirit's drawing them anyway, when the Father's drawing them anyway. So the thinking has already been changing prior to the... Uh, the point of gospel hearing. Yeah, I think 46 is awesome. 47 is problematic when immature believers are trying to incorporate repentance in their gospel message. All right? Repentance is much more suitable for the tribulation, much more suitable for the imminent arrival of the kingdom, much more suitable for um, believers to straighten up. And, 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 and besides, repentance is the message to believers anyway. Not to unbelievers. When, when, when the Pharisees started coming out to get baptized, Jesus called him a, uh, John the Baptist called him a brood of vipers, said, who was preaching to you guys? Who told you to flee from the wrath to come? <laughs> okay? That repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand was not given to unbelievers. It was change your thinking and get right with the Lord before his kingdom is established. Kind of like, you know, Start your Bible class with silent prayer. Make sure you're in fellowship before the teaching starts. Repent before the kingdom arrives. That's a message to believers. So, I mean, if you want to incorporate verse 47, fine, in your discipleship, uh, your, your Great Commission application, but this isn't the Great Commission conference. This is the Great Cognition conference. So uh, verse 46 is evangelistic, and verse 47 is... Um, an edification basis, preparing for the coming kingdom, and it's directed towards believers. All right, and you are witnesses of these things. You are martyrs, martus, witnesses. Witnesses. Every member of the church has a duty to be a martyr. Every member of the church has a duty to be 
a martyr. I want you to understand this. Martyr is your assignment. My assignment. Even to the point of death, if he so chooses. Not many of us are selected for that, at least in this country, but perhaps those days are coming. We still are expected to be a witness. The term martus means witness. Martoreo means bear witness or testify. In a legal proceeding, it means that you are submitting truthful testimony of that which you know. Okay? And what's remarkable about being a witness is you don't have to be an expert witness. You're just a witness of what you know. You don't have to have all the answers. You just have to faithfully tell what you've seen, what you've heard, what you know. All right? And so if they want to ask all these other weird stuff and say, well, I don't know about that, but here's what I do know. Okay? I don't know about that, but here's what I do know. And you're a witness. And you're a witness. The faithfulness is, we're, we're, not the, we're not here to debate. We're not here to answer every skeptical question of every skeptical skeptic. We're here to testify of what we know. And I love that. That's the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. That's the genius of the gospel. Somebody that was just saved yesterday can do this. Somebody that was just saved today can do this. Because <laughs> that's what they know. They don't, have a, they don't have a degree from a theological college, but they know that this morning I was blind, but now I can see. <laughs> you know? Ask my parents whatever you want to ask them. Ask me when you want to ask me, but I don't know anything about that, but here's one thing I do know. Okay? They were saying, give glory to God. We know he's a sinner. We know he's a sinner. And the man born blind said, well, I don't know about that, but what I do know, I was blind and now I can see. He was a witness. It's a great chapter. It's a great story. It's, it's an encouragement for us. All right, Martus, number 3144. There are 35 uses. I'm not going to take us through those. Um, we associate martyr with someone that dies for their faith. That's a martyr. Okay? In, in common usage, that's what we limit it to. And that's sad because we all should be martyrs. We all should be witnesses. And, and maybe the title was assigned to someone that, that was willing to die rather than compromise their witness. And in the church fathers, that's what they were called to do. And Justin Martyr, for example, is one of the church fathers and accepted that as a surname, as a last name. Okay? But all of them, uh, Tertullian, Polycarp, all these guys, the martyrdom of Polycarp, okay? he maintained his witness. He said, the Lord's been faithful to me for these 86 years. Why would I deny him now? Okay? Paraphrasing the Greek. Um, meaning that rather than save my neck by denying my Lord, I'm going to maintain my witness and die. Go to heaven. Doesn't cost me anything. What does it cost me? Physical death? Small price to pay. Small price to pay for the eternal reward of glorifying him with every thought, word, and deed. And we're expected to be martyrs. So do we maintain our witness under criticism? Do we maintain our witness under um, persecution? Even to the minimal degree we have it in this country? Do we compromise our witness when we are at risk of being mocked and ridiculed and shamed? Or if we're put to death? Waiting to be clothed was both literal and typical. The last point of study here, i got five minutes to, wow, teach all this. Waiting to be clothed, both literal and typical. So, thus it is written, 
We want to be able to teach the death and resurrection of Christ from an Old Testament framework, from a New Testament framework. We want to be able to preach the gospel wherever we go. We also want to preach repentance to believers wherever we go. We want to maintain our witness wherever we go. These are the expectations of what a believer is in the church age. And it's not just in Jerusalem. It starts there, but it goes to all the nations. And then he says, Behold, I am sending forth the promise of my Father upon you. But you are to stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Ten days after his ascension is Pentecost. So 40 days after the cross is his ascension. And if he wraps up the, uh, this uh, great cognition Bible conference on uh, March 13th, then maybe um, the next morning, March 14th, then he leads them out, not March, May, May 14th. This is 40 days after April 5th. He leads them out as far as Bethany and was lifted up, and this is where he ascends. He ascends to heaven 10 days before Pentecost. Pentecost is 50 days after um, Passover. So there's a 10-day gap from his ascension to the descent of the Holy Spirit. And during those 10 days, what are they doing during those 10 days? What are they doing in 10 days? I suspect they returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple praising God. (laughs) That day by day by day, they spent their days at the temple. They spent their evenings in the upper room. We see that. They were in the upper room together when the Holy Spirit descends at Pentecost. They had 10 days of fellowship. Ministry in the temple, fellowship, prayer, Bible study in the evenings. Trying to digest the conference of everything he taught them here at the Great Cognition episode. Now, waiting to be clothed. Waiting to be clothed. Now, they literally did that for 10 days. They literally did that for 10 days, and then at Pentecost, they were clothed with power from on high. The Holy Spirit descended. It's not here in Luke, but you get it in Acts chapter uh, 2. Acts chapter 1, in a lot of ways, is a restatement of Luke 24. Same author, same recipient, Theophilus. And um, those uh, early verses, when they had come together in verse 6, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time you're restoring the kingdom to Israel? Is it at this time you're restoring the kingdom to Israel? I think that question, I should have mentioned that earlier. I'm sorry I didn't. That question should have been mentioned earlier because I think it helps frame his answers, particularly about the gospel and about the repentance message. It is not for you to know the times or epochs by which the Father has fixed it by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be my witnesses. Here it is again, the Martus message, both in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest parts of the earth. Is that great commission or great cognition parallel? It's great cognition parallel. Because they're all wrapped up in the kingdom. Okay? I'm seeing puzzled looks. All right. Okay. We'll, uh, We'll do this next week.
I'll even tweak the outline a little bit to spell it out more in a greater fashion. Because this is not church focus. This is Israel focus. You know, all they're thinking about is the kingdom, restoring the kingdom to Israel. That's their frame of reference. This is church, this is not church focus. This is kingdom focus. Okay? So we'll have to deal with that. But keep in mind, waiting until we're clothed, there's a, there's a, that's what you and I are doing too. We're living this Christian walk, waiting to be clothed with what? The resurrection body. Waiting to be clothed with the power from on high. We have the down payment, we have the deposit, but that's only the earnest money. What we have today is only with the Holy Spirit indwelling us and the spiritual gift and all of that. That is, all that is, is the deposit. Until we get our resurrected body, until the body of sin is done away with, until we are molded in conformity to the image of Christ, we're not there yet. We're waiting to be clothed from on high. And that's where we are. And I think that's uh, something else we want to stress next week too. So, okay, I'll tweak the outline a little bit. We'll spell that point four out a little bit more. And uh, I might even I might even expand on point two there, that global mission and how it relates not only to the apostles, but really in a larger sense to the tribulational martyrs, those that are preaching repentance as forerunners of the kingdom of heaven. That's, that's where some subpoints. So come back next week and uh, we'll work on that. Father, thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you for uh, all your blessings. Uh, thank you for the privilege we have to rightly divide the word of truth. Father, searching the scriptures diligently to see if these things are so. Obviously, Father, we have to distinguish between what's expected of us and what's not expected of us, what pertains to the church, what pertains to Israel. Father, if we, if we muddle those waters, we're in a lot of trouble, Father. So um, open the eyes of our understanding. Dia nuevo, the eyes of our understanding. Dia nuevo, the ears of our hearing, Father. Dia nuevo, our hearts. Cause our hearts to burn within us in identification of truth as it shines forth from, from you. We thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.